Deacon is someone who is known to many of you. He and I have been friends since we were first introduced to each other by Randy Price almost 40 years ago. And uh, lots gone on in the last 40 years to keep up with. And um, Tommy Ice is the executive director of the Pre-Trib uh, Research Center, uh, which he founded in 1994 along with Tim LaHaye in order to research and teach and defend the pre-trib rapture doctrine and related biblical uh, prophecy. He's co-authored or authored about 30 books and is writing different things right now. You've got a new chart book coming out anytime soon. And uh, he's been a pastor over that time for about 15 years. He's got a Ph.D. from Tyndale Seminary and uh, did doctoral work at the University of Wales in church history. So Tommy has just returned from Israel like two days ago where he attended the Christ at the Checkpoint Conference. If you are a Christian Zionist, you know what you believe. You're a Christian who supports Israel. If you are a Christian Palestinian, as Palestinian, then you are the opposite. You believe that, 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 um, that you support the Palestinians and their claims and you always take their side against, uh, the Jews and against Israel. And that was the focus. So it's a fact-finding uh, mission to find out where this is going. And it's, uh, unfortunately, it's increasing in traction. And so Tommy is going to come up, and he's got that topic for this for this first session. There you go. And, uh, you know, went to this conference. But, you know, I'm kind of famous for going to conferences that are the opposite of what I believe in. Uh, I've been doing it much of my adult life. And my prayer before I went was uh, to keep my mouth shut. But once I got there, uh, I was enlightened and found it was better to tell people right up front, I am a Christian Zionist here observing. And they would always go, oh, wonderful. (laughs) But uh, it really wasn't wonderful to them because we, uh, in fact, they concluded the conference. They hardly talked about Christian Zionism because this is their fourth conference, and they had bashed us for the previous three conferences. And uh, the concluding statement was that our number one problem or enemy is still Christian Zionism. And uh, basically they believe that because all of these wacko Christians in America who do not have a historic anti-Semitic background because their Puritan forefathers were filio-Semitic, and uh, therefore, we still support Israel in the 70% range. And therefore, we enable Israel to uh, exist and implement their policies. Therefore, we are the deciding factor in America, and then that impacts the world. So we're the number one enemies, you see. If Christian Zionists didn't support Israel, and you may not like that term, 
the historic term all the way back to the 1600s was Christian restorationists who wanted to see the restoration of Israel to the land because they started reading the Bible. That can be dangerous, especially if you haven't been taught how to misread it. Uh, it can be very dangerous reading the Bible, and some of the early Puritans who were put in jail, one or two was burned at the stake uh, for advocating Israel's return to the land, uh, said they discovered it by reading the Bible. But nobody believed that. You know, uh, you can't come up with something that the church hadn't believed for 1,500 years, you know, uh, by reading the Bible. And the Christ at the Checkpoint Manifesto says, number one, the kingdom of God has come. Evangelicals must reclaim their prophetic role. Now, what they mean by that is prophetic role means to speak out against injustice. That's their big thing. And I ask, uh, there were about 450 people there, and I about 300 were from out of country and about 200 from the Bethlehem, Israel area. And uh, I asked them, how come there's no talk about evangelizing, you know, fulfilling the Great Commission? And, and I was told by a lady from London that this was a peacekeeper conference. <laughs> I asked her, is this a UN peacekeepers conference or what kind of, no, you know, and all of this. And so I apparently am not in on all of this kind of thinking about being a peacemaker. And, of course, the devotions every morning were from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. In fact, one person compared that with John 1.12, which says, if you, uh, you know, uh, he came to his own, verse 11, his own received him not, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the sons of God. And he said, why do we stress John 1.12 when the same thing is said in Matthew 5, you know? about being a peacemaker. So uh, these people are real scholars. <laughs> so evangelicals uh, must reclaim their prophetic role. See, that's speaking out against injustice, and the injustice is the wall. By the way, here's my official Christ at the checkpoint bag that I got. And on the other side is Bethlehem. And there's a piece of paper inside that said it was totally made in Bethlehem. So this is not made in China. <laughs> and uh, we got that bag. It only cost 250 to come to this conference. <clears throat> and so uh, we must bring ju uh, peace, justice, and reconciliation in Palestine and Israel. Okay? Secondly... Reconciliation recognizes God's image in one another. Thirdly, racial ethnicity alone does not guarantee the benefits of the Abrahamic covenant. Even though it says to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants. Now, is that ethnic? If you think it is ethnic, then you're a racist. I mean, that was said a bunch of times, you know. Even though Genesis repeats the Abrahamic covenant 20 times to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants, 
And I think it's referred to 37 times in the book of Deuteronomy uh, and on throughout. Now, they believe that it has been fulfilled in Christ, is what they say. So uh, Jesus isn't interested in that little strip of land in the Levant anymore. Since he came, it's the whole world that he's interested in. And if we have an interest in that little strip of land in the Levant, then uh, we're, we're totally screwed up, is basically their belief. And uh, we don't have, we're not interested in peacemaking and all of this. And the whole, whole ide- these whole ideas are really based on liberation theology type stuff, a liberal view of the kingdom, all of this kind of stuff. Because you never hear this. You know, I, I told someone, you know, they asked me why I don't agree with their view. I said, because it's, it's, it's not the product of inductive exegesis. I don't know if they knew what that meant, but nevertheless. <laughs> so, fourthly, the church in the land of the Holy One has borne witness to Christ since the day of Pentecost. I, that one speaker actually said that the Palestinian Christians, uh, words, that Palestinian Christians, and they were implying Gentiles, were the first Christians on the day of Pentecost. And, and Arabs especially, because it named all those countries there in Acts 2. Now, of course, I don't want anybody to read the Bible too closely, because if you read it, it, it says these were Jews who were scattered in the diaspora in these various countries, you see. But this is, this is how it works, apparently. And so they claim... I never heard anybody from the pulpit say Jesus was a Palestinian, but uh, they have said those kinds of things at the previous conferences uh, before, that Jesus is a Palestinian. How It's impossible for him to have been a Palestinian, you know? I mean, it wasn't invented, the ancient Palestinians weren't invented until 1964 with Yasser Arafat. They believe in the late birth view of Jesus. Something like that. And... Uh, I wish I could show you guys video who, uh, you know, and, and the fact that the word P is not even in the Arab alphabet. You know, that's that's why they say Palestinian, you know, because so so it's obviously an outside term, but maybe more on that later. You never know. But it goes on and says, it must be empowered to continue to be the salt and light in the region if there is to be hope in the midst of conflict. Any exclusive claim to the land of the Bible in the name of God is not in line with the teaching of Scripture. You wonder what Bible they're reading. I mean, uh, one of the saddest moments was when I met a classmate of mine from Dallas Seminary who was there, a 1981 graduate, and he was on the dark side. He wasn't there (laughs) observing like I was. But, Andy, you'd be interested in this, he had gone vineyard 25 years ago. So he, a vineyard pastor who's sucking up all this stuff. And since I mentioned Andy, he has a great set of articles that... I don't know if he has them posted anywhere else, but they're on our website at Pre-Trib that deal with the kingdom and all the implications. That's what I like about his series on the kingdom. And this is what this is the biggest theological issue, I think, 
having gone to the, is their view of the kingdom is now. And this is where all the young people are going, the millennials. And what we're seeing happen over there is happening over here, you see, because there were 150 college students from America that were at this conference because that's why they had it when they did during spring break. And uh, Gary Burge, who was, is a New Testament professor at Wheaton College, was in charge of a track for college students at this conference. And we've all observed, if you've been to our conference, preacher conference, you know that we've talked about this for a number of years, the shift away from Bible teaching and Bible study to social issues and stuff. And we're not saying you shouldn't be involved in voting and politics and all that. We're not saying that. But what was the church given by Christ on five occasions? The Great Commission, right. And that's totally lost uh, in what these people are saying because it's all about being a peacemaker and social justice and all of this kind of stuff. So all forms of violence must be refuted unequivocally. And, you know, I ask, how come there weren't any Hamas representatives here? Uh, no one knew what to say, you know. I mean, we're right there where it would be pretty easy. A local call, you know, could have gotten you a, a Hamas speaker. And uh, But no, nobody from Hamas. And these are the people that, that need to be hearing this stuff, right? Uh, okay. And number seven, Palestinian Christians must not lose the capacity of self-criticism if they wish to remain prophetic. There's... Prophetic means to speak to the issues of injustice, you see, which is the wall, the, separate, the separation wall. Okay. Uh, there are real injustices taking place in the Palestinian territories, and the suffering of the Palestinian people can no longer be ignored. Any solution must respect the equity and rights of Israelis and Palestinian communities. They say they love Israel. But their rhetoric did not match that. I mean, that's easy to say. Why do they blame Israel instead of the terror? I heard one reference to terrorism during the whole conference. It's like it doesn't happen in their worldview. You know, all they talk about is the Israeli soldiers and justice. In fact, the college students went to Hebron one afternoon on a bus trip and uh, Gary Burge had mentioned how proud he was of some of the students engaging the evil Israeli soldiers and questioning them about issues there in Hebron, you know. And uh, so, number nine, for Palestinian Christians, the occupation is the core issue of the conflict. And, of course, that's, what, that's all you hear, the occupation, the occupation, the occupation. Well, what is the occupation based on? It's based on a U.N. Resolution 242 where the United Nations accused Israel of occupying territory that was not theirs. However, if you, one thing I've learned in the last couple of years is international law is not based on U.N. resolutions. U.N. resolutions cannot create international law. International law is created by uh, treaties and agreements 
between parties. This is why the San Remo Conference in 1920, uh, where they, the U, uh, League of Nations agreed to give a mandate to England to transition England like a father overseas a son, uh, bringing in a Jewish nation into, quote, unquote, Palestine. And so there is no occupation because the ceasefire agreement in 1949 and subsequent ceasefire agreements in 67 and 73 say that the, the two parties uh, uh, neither signed a truce to end the war, just an agreement to stop conflicts. And the UN says that they have to negotiate between the two parties for a final resolution of this conflict, you see? And so when you hear everybody just talk about the occupation, the occupation, you know, there, technically there is no occupation. And, and I was adjusting this, and I guess I hit the button. Now if I can hit it the right way back on. I'm on. Okay. Um, and, and so the, these are important things. I questioned, uh, you know, people right off the bat, the occupation. How, how did this, how do you know there's an occupation? You know, nobody could tell me, not even the British. They're, they're smarter than the average person, of course. And there are a lot, there are a lot of British there, folks there. And uh, so... Number nine, the pal for pa so that's an assumption there that I think should be challenged. Uh, forget the fact that they reject Scripture, the age-long promise uh, that God says that I'm going to bring, I'm going to scatter Israel into the land. They all believe that. You ever met anybody who didn't believe in the diaspora? You know, it's prophesied in the Bible. But there's probably eight or nine times more prophecies about them being regathered. And it doesn't say regathered, scattered again, regathered, scattered again. There's one regathering. It's taking place now in unbelief, you see. And so, therefore, there's going to be a second regathering at the second coming, you know, when Christ comes and uh, destroys the enemies. I wonder if the U.N. will object. They'll pass a resolution against the second... <laughs> Second coming of Christ, or something like that. But uh, and and Jesus is gonna he's gonna violate their nonviolent clause here <laughs> at the second coming. Do you realize that he's gonna and he's in the New Testament. I thought the bad old God in the Old Testament was the one they wanted. You know, Jesus is carrying the lamb. Oh, you know, all that stuff. So. Uh, they say it's the core issue is the occupation. So, 10, any challenge of the injustices taking place in the Holy Land must be done in Christian law. I think there are all kinds of injustices taking place. And I think primarily they're done by the Muslims. They're the ones that stab people, you know, on the street. Fortunately, the Israelis are very good shots. And they only get one, one, one or two chances to, you know, stab somebody before they get shot and killed, which, which is a very good solution to that problem, in my opinion. 
And uh, criticism of Israel and the occupation cannot be confused with anti-Semitism. So if you bring that up, oh, boy. And the delegitimization of the state of Israel. See, they claim that they're supposed to live together in, in, in peace. Well, I really think if it wasn't for the Muslims, they would have a good shot at it. Because I think most of these Christians would get along with Israel. You see, because I, I've heard of one instance, like seven or eight years ago, of a uh, Arab Christian getting involved in terrorism, and he just helped a terrorist get somewhere or something like that. I, I don't know that a Arab Christian in Israel has ever been involved in a direct terrorist act. And But, on the other hand, they, they, they harass Israel. You see what I'm saying? And they get the church on their side by, uh, in the West by saying that they're a poor, trampled-down people. I ask a number of people, well, what have y'all done about the Christians up in Lebanon? At least 20,000 have been killed, your brothers and sisters. I don't hear a peep about Lebanon since 1982 and how the Muslims came from the north and started taking over, set up, Checkpoints and are you a Christian? Yes. Will you convert to Islam? No. I mean, it's out there. You can read about it, but it's covered up. Where's the concern for the for those poor Christians in Lebanon? There's a lot more of them there in Lebanon and things. Uh, but apparently, the fifty thousand or so Christians in Israel, you know, are the most important, you know, in the world. And, and they and I. Well, I'll talk about this later, but 11, respectful dialogue between Palestinian and Messianic believers, Jewish Messianic believers, must continue. They have a Jewish lady on faculty at Bethlehem Bible College. Bethlehem Bible College is the ones that sponsor this conference every two years. And they have a Jewish Christian lady on Staff. She was as bad or worse than any of them when she got up and gave her little talk. Uh, though we may disagree on secondary matters of theology, like, I guess, who owns the land and all of that kind of stuff, the gospel of Jesus and his ethical teaching take precedence. See, so they're, they're running this through this grid of either liberation theology, most of them are not into liberation theology, but some were, or just what we would call liberal, good old-fashioned liberalism of we're in the kingdom and peace and justice and all of this, and they come up with a liberal view of peace and justice and say that if you don't stand up for that, then you don't love. One guy gave a whole talk on how standing up and speaking out against the occupation is an expression of Christ's love. Because if, Je- you know, it's all this, if Jesus were here today, uh, like God somehow made a mistake having him come 2,000 years ago, if Jesus were here today, he would speak out against the occupation. <laughs> well, I-, I think I remember, help me out, you Bible scholars, to see that. Israel was under an occupation. Oh, yeah. Where are all those passages about speaking uh, 
truth to justice in Jesus' day. There was an occupation. Oh, well. Twelve, Christians must understand the global context for the rise of extremist Islam. Okay. We challenge the story typing, stereotyping, I'm sorry, I can't read, of all faith forms that betray God's commitment to love our neighbors and enemies. And I, I mean, I certainly don't disagree with a lot of this stuff, but the tone, the attitude, the bent, and when you go there, we got to pack it with all kinds of stuff. Uh, interested in going deeper? You can have an online course on Palestinian theology. Well, there's two options, September 15th through uh, uh, 2016 or January 15th, 2017, for three months online, a mere $300 USA. And it's a three-hour course on Palestinian theology. I thought, you know, I could probably make a lot of money if I started a course on Texas theology. I mean, why not? Okay, here's Bethlehem Bible College. And like I said, these people seem to have a lot of money. And I rode, I rode in the taxis and the buses all around Bethlehem. I didn't see any poverty at all. I said, these people should, should come to Mexico or South America if they want to see it. You know, there's no poverty at all that I saw in Bethlehem. And I had one taxi guy go all around the wrong way. He went the wrong way and had to go all around and through the back roads and everything. I mean, it was pretty nice over there. And they had all the latest electronic equipment. I mean, they put us to shame. In fact, the taxi driver drove me from Bethlehem to the airport. He was talking on three cell phones at one time. <laughs> I mean, and he was complaining about the wall when he wasn't on the phone, that he couldn't go to the beach any time he wanted. I mean, this is real persecution. He could not get to go to the beach any time he wanted. And uh, things like that. So here is the Bethlehem Bible College, like I say, is very sophisticated. They, were, they made videos that were really sharp in English. Some of them, some of them not in English, in Arabic. And I'm just saying, I was impressed, man, if our pre-trip study group had that kind of technology they had, Bruce isn't here, but, uh, I mean, it's amazing the equipment they had and the stuff that they had and, and did. They had the same kind of music we got over here, by the way. Uh, and uh, they were teaching us some lyrics in Arabic. So here is something... It says, any exclusive claim to the land of the Bible in the name of God is not in line with the teaching of Scripture. Did you know that? You know, those passages were said, God says, I own everything and I've given this land to Israel, you know, or Jacob or whatever. I asked one person, you know, it says 103 times in the Old Testament that he's the God of Israel. Is he no longer the God of Israel? They didn't know what to say. Um, so here, here's a statement from the Keros 
Palestine movement, which is some leftist-type movement. It says, therefore, we declare that any use of the Bible to legitimize or support political options and positions that are based upon injustice. See, when they say injustice, it's just like the left over here. Justice. Nobody ever talks about what justice is, you see. And they are kind of the same way. They talk about that. Imposed by one person on another or by uh, one people on another, transform religion into human ideology and strip the word of God of its holiness, its universality, and its truth. Uh, I did not watch this film called Open Bethlehem, a big film about a small town. See the wall? because I had been up for 36 straight hours because of the flight, and so I decided to go to bed. And I did, and I went to sleep. I didn't even dream about being in Bethlehem or anything. Now, John down here, I told him he needed an M.A. in peace studies (laughs) because he needs to learn how to get along with folks. And so they offer a Master of Arts in Peace Studies If for anybody that's interested in furthering their education here. Do they do any pistol or rifle training? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, they, one of the speakers was called the Palestinian Gandhi. So, you know, that, they weren't into that kind of stuff. Yes. Yes, a flap jacket with a target coming in on him from Israel. That's a pretty smart duck. Like, <laughs> like Israel is aiming at him is, is the implication. So one morning we went at 6 a.m. to the wall. I mean, you got to really search to find that thing. And, you know, I mean, you're in there, and you can drive around for 30 minutes and not But they make it sound like that everybody lives next to the wall. <laughs> And it's so disruptive. Uh, I saw they have hospitals all over the place in Bethlehem. I even saw a hospital that that was for uh, pediatric cancer. I mean, that's a pretty specialized hospital, you know. And they talk about having to go across the wall to go, you know, if somebody's pregnant to get, go to the doctor and everything. I got hospitals galore over there. I don't know why they have to go over there uh, into Israel, you know, to do this. They seem to have everything under the sun there. And so we go to the checkpoint, and I remember going through the checkpoint in 2011 when we were there, but uh, they had about, in the whole checkpoint, each morning you have about 7,000 Palestinians that are going to work in Israel. And so they have to go through this. And so we went through it with them. And I, I would compare it to trying to get on the subway in Manhattan on an average morning. Really, I'm serious. It was about like that. You know, you had to wait in this line. But I've been in New York City where you had to do the same kind of thing just to get on the subway and people pushing you and all of this kind of stuff. And you have to put your stuff in this metal detector. The thing was, there was no Israeli watching the metal detector. <laughs> So everybody's just going through the metal detector, going beep, 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 and nobody paid any attention. (laughs) And then you did have to show your passport or or a card or something. And there was an Israeli in a 
glass window, you know, I mean, in a surrounded by glass thing, looking at your passport. And that was it. This is the oppression that these people have to live under. And that's only those that go to work. There's all kinds of work and construction going on in Bethlehem itself, you see. And then I went one day and spent a day in Manger Square, and the Muslims have taken it over because they built a mosque on the other end. And some imam was just preaching at the top of his lungs. That's the only way they preach. A lot of us would not hack it if we were Muslims. Uh just screaming and hollering, you know, in Arabic. And then they all gather and fill the square, you know, for their prayer at some point. And so I went in the church in Nativity, and, you know, they're remodeling it. Because remember about seven or eight years ago when the Muslims occupied the church of Nativity and they ransacked it, and, they're, you know, they're fixing it up again from, uh, you know, the Muslim occupation of, of the church of Nativity. So... The program itself, by the way, Robbie, how long do I have? You have another, your session's over in just under 30 minutes. Thank you. And the program involved a, a welcome by the mayor, uh, the prime minister of, of Palestine. How many of you know there was a prime minister of Palestine? I didn't. But uh, he couldn't come. So he sent an emissary, and then we had the mayor of Beit Jela instead of Bethlehem greet us. And uh, then we had the conference was specializing on religious extremism. That's us. Look at your neighbor. We're, we're uh, us now. That included Muslims and some Jewish. They had a settler guy, a Jewish settler guy, come who was a t- had a video of him being attacked by a Muslim, you know, in his olive guard, olive uh, grove, or something, you know. And uh, so that's re- that's extremist, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish extremism, and we're the problem. They're okay. These guys, these Bethlehem Bible College guys, they're the mainstream, and we're the extremist. Okay. And so you had the challenge of religious extremism by Jack Sarah, and he's the president of Bethlehem Bible College. And then you had, uh, oh, Lucy Berry, a poet from London. (laughs) And she gave wonderful poetic poetry citations that she had written. And one of them, I couldn't, you know, after the first session, I left. I mean, I couldn't handle it. I could handle, the, you know, this talk about Islam and all that stuff, but this poetry stuff just, I'm, I'm sorry, it just wasn't my bag of tea, if you will. And she talked about this poem that she had written about being on a ladder and one day she came and she climbed up a few steps and then the next day and the higher she got the more her problems seemed to fade until one day she decided to stay up and go higher and higher and she didn't want to leave the ladder boy that's going to just solve all our problems you know (laughs) 
type of type of thing, you know. So she was there, and they had her do talk twice a day. It was pretty bad. And they had a Church of England bishop, Tendero, who was from uh, India originally, and he, he had grown up in a Islamic home, and he gave kind of a political talk uh, about how. And I thought he he was very good. In fact, I, I had lunch with him once. And uh, he said, what you need to solve this problem is a bill of rights like the Americans have, where everybody is equal under the law. And that would solve it. And I said, you know, how are you going to sell this to Hamas? <laughs> and, of course, he didn't know. He said, that's the problem, you know. Um, <laughs> And things, well, you know, and, and, and I thought he was pretty good, you know. And uh, then you had a guy after the Bible reflection on the Sermon on the Mount uh, named Mustafa. Well, no, there was a guy named Jonathan Kutab who spoke of Islam and how you needed to understand the different varieties of Islam. And he said there's hundreds of thousands of different varieties of Islam, just like in Christianity, you know. And so we needed to understand those. Okay. Uh, and he basically also said that Islam has not undergone anything similar to the Reformation uh, that we have. And I thought, well, the Greek Orthodox Church hasn't experienced a Reformation either. Uh, but so that was a wonderful contribution. And then there's a guy named Salim Munair. And uh, he was a member of the Christian community in Israel-Palestine. And he, wanted, he talked about the environment, in other words, the atmosphere there, and uh, about how we should be involved uh, politically because if we really learn, uh, love Christ, we'll be involved politically, etc. And he, he, he said, you ready for this? The challenge is fundamentalist Islam. So, uh, that was that speaker. And then we had an African there who gave us a history of Boko Haram, and how it started uh, about 200 years ago, actually, you know, by a particular leader who everybody wanted to emulate, like they emulate Muhammad, and how all of them got killed off, <laughs> and another guy would take his place. And so the current guy has only been in there three, about five years, I think. Yeah, and uh, but it goes back to some real extreme form of uh, Islam in the early 1800s there, uh, that and Boko Haram comes out of that. As well. Then you had uh, Regina Henderson, and uh, she is an American, uh, Afro-American from uh, Duke University. She's a Methodist, and she claims she's not an evangelical. And she said that she was a con moderately conservative liberal.
And uh, she said that we need a common experience to unite us, and she suggested the sacrament of baptism as a uniting experience. You know, not the gospel, but... And uh, she... Uh, talked about how she believed in liberation theology and everything. And uh, how when the Black Lives Matter movement, which she totally supported, uh, happened, the Palestinians there at Bethlehem Bible College were the first to tweet positive responses in the world. And how she had a bond with the Palestinian Christians because they were fellow people being persecuted. So that tells you something about the student body there at Bethlehem Bible College. And so I guess that's why she was invited to speak. Uh, So everything was social. And then there was a guy named Rick Love. He was a Westminster grad. And he spoke about our Muslim neighbor. Uh... And this is what I saw at the conference. Everybody wanted to have dialogue movements. You know what I mean? To dialogue with people. See, wasn't Fuller Seminary founded on that? They're in dialogue with the liberals. What did they last? Three years? Before they went over the dark side? Maybe three years. But some say five. But uh, anywhere in there. And um, so he gave five commands. Number one, get the log out of your own eye before looking at the specks and the others. And everything that we do on our side is because we're afraid, fear. Everything we do is fear. Everything they do is love, motivated by love. Okay. And then number two, love your enemies. It's all out of Matthew 5, of course. Uh, thirdly, be shrewd as a snake and innocent as doves. Fourthly, render to Caesar the things that are of Caesar and God the things that are God, Matthew 22. He got outside the bubble there. And uh, Romans 12 through 13 describes the relationship of believers and government very good. And then fifthly, love your neighbors as yourself. And that means terrorists, etc., and all of this. So that was how to battle extremism, see. And then we had a guy named Sammy Awad, and uh, he gave a talk on Christian Zionism and the conflict. And uh, he says that Palestinian Christians want justice. Once again, justice equals to oppose the use of the Bible other than for justice. He literally said that. In other words, you can't use the Bible except to justify justice, their view of justice. And um, so I I, I guess that means verse-by-verse Bible teaching is out. And I I see some guys here that are verse-by-verse Bible teachers will have a repentance form in the back (laughs) there for you. Uh, there have always been theological disagreements within the church, but the influence of Zionism on the church has been great. I didn't, un- didn't know that until he said that. But so they don't want to deal with the big, you know, 
what I would call an inductive, organic study of Scripture that gets God's big plan for history from Scriptures. They 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 bring in obviously from the outside uh, paradigms and they impose it, and they call it biblical theology. You know, being a peacemaker and all of this kind of stuff. Now, I think this is important. This is what's happening in America. This is where the 35 and unders are going. And you're going to hear the same kind of stuff being applied in the United States coming from our quote-unquote evangelical young people today. This is what they're getting. You know, at Liberty University, I taught there seven years. They're getting some of this stuff in some segments of Liberty University even. You know, it's supposed to be the big fundamentalist place. By the way, on the, on Wednesday, the Wednesday night, they had one guy give his testimony who had been born and raised in Bethlehem, and his dad wanted him to go uh, to the United States for education. And so he said, I went to Liberty University, and everybody just groaned like, oh. And he says, but it was great. He said, I got saved there. Uh, you know, they didn't seem too happy, but uh, and he now runs an evangelistic organization in Virginia that reaches Muslims in Middle Eastern. The first time, you know, I'm sitting here through three days, and this is the first guy that mentioned the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm saying nobody's talking about the gospel. Even though Jesus five times repeated the Great Commission five different ways, that's what the church is supposed to spread the gospel and mature believers, right? Well, and so this guy, I don't know how they let him in the program, but <laughs> he, he, he came in there. And their pride and joy at, on the faculty at, at, at uh, Bethlehem Bible College is Munther Isaac, and he just has written a book. I have a copy of his dissertation. It's called uh, From Land to Lands, From Eden to the Renewed Earth. And, you know, it's about how Jesus fulfilled all of this stuff. And, uh, you know, he uses Jesus having fulfilled the land promises to disinherit the Jews. You know, and they didn't, none of them wanted to say that they believed in replacement theology even though they do, you know. All, they all believe in replacement theology. Uh, so you could say they, they believed in the Jews being disinherited from their land promises uh, and that that's never going to happen in the future. And we don't know why God allowed the Jews to come back to the modern state of Israel and create the modern state of Israel. I mean, God must have let things get out of control <laughs> or something there for that, for that to have happened. And so this is, and he, he has a master's degree from Westminster Seminary. You know, Westminster has a lot, back, I think as early as the late 70s, they were into this peacemaking stuff. This started with their inner city type degree or focus at Westminster. But a lot of these people are off on this left-wing evangelicalism coming out of evangel, you know, out of Westminster. <clears throat> just as we have the same kinds of stuff coming out of Dallas now. And uh, so he gave a thing, um, and he said that we should not 
believe in the theology of Christian Zionism. Now, my understanding is is that just simply believing that Israel has a future is Christian Zionism in their eyes. That uh, you know, pre, premillennialism and all of that kind of stuff is just really, really bad. Uh, and they don't believe that God is on the side of Israel because of Genesis twelve one through three. I didn't know there was an expiration date on that passage. Did you? God loves the you know. Oh, one said it just applied to Abraham. Secondly, uh, Christian Zionism uh, controls the narrative today, and as a result, the Palestinians are dehumanized, and they're a country without a nation for a nation without a country, and that's what. Uh, in the 1800s, the British would say about Israel and the Jews. They, they were a people without a country and a, uh, and a country that was largely empty, and they get all upset over that. Well, it was. You know, I've, I read two books while I was over there that I took with me about how there wasn't more than 600,000 people in all the land of Palestine in the 1880s, and probably 20% of them were Jews anyway, and only about 400,000 Arabs. <clears throat> and uh, get Joan Peters' book from Time Immemorial, and she shows how in 1948, and by the way, she was a liberal uh, from University of Chicago, worked for the UN. She uh, was in the bunker in 82 in Beirut, Lebanon with Arafat. And when she got out of the bunker, you know, after Errol Sharon and them went in and found all that military equipment and pushed and the PLO went to Tunis and then the peace thing uh, the uh, 1994 peace agreement was brought him back in to uh, govern that from Tunis and she was going to write a book about how the Jews had stolen their land and that's another thing they talk about how the Jews stole their land I mean these people at this conference And she basically spent seven, eight years looking at all the county courthouses or or equivalent where land deeds and looked at every land deed in Palestine and found that something like 80% of the Arabs had been there less than one generation. In other words, they came into Israel because Israel comes in and creates a Western economy and they want to get jobs, right? And most of them were from Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Syria, Lebanon, you know, the immediate area. And yet they talk about how they've been there from time immemorial. That's why our book is sarcastically named that. And she has all the documentation <coughs> about uh, how the Israel Fund bought all this land that nobody wanted. You know, I've been reading this book about how just on and on how nobody could live in most of Israel because the malaria was so bad, because the streams were all stopped up and it created ponds and malaria, and the Arabs would go try to live there and they'd either die or have to go away, you know, and they concentrated in certain cities. You know, it's it's a whole history. This idea that the Jews came in and stole the land is just a lie. They paid for the land because... <clears throat> they had such oppressive taxes. Uh, the Syrian uh, and <coughs> Ottoman governments 
that eventually the peasants would lose, have such big tax bills they couldn't pay, that land would then be taken over and consolidated into these big landovers that lived in Cairo or Damascus, you see. And then when anybody would offer them like six or seven times what it was worth, they would sell it. And the Israel National Fund that was founded in 1902 around in there would buy this land for Jews. And they would come in and drain the swamps and get the water flowing again. And people forget a third of the Jews from about 1882 when you had the first modern Jewish settlement to around uh, the 1930s, a third of them died of malaria conquering the land and turning it into the Garden of Eden that it is today. And whereas the Arab peoples would not do that, they would just hit, come in for a little while. They didn't own the land, you see. <clears throat> and so they bought all of this land and they didn't take it over, except for some land they took over during the war and all of this. But, you know, they, they have all these sad sob stories about how the Jews came in and, and ran them out of the country when we know the Arabs told them to leave themselves, and they would destroy the Jews, and then they could come back and occupy the land. Well, it didn't work out that way, as you know. And so it's just all this kind of stuff. I remember when I was at Liberty, I was the faculty advisor for the Stand with Israel Club, and we had these Palestinians from Bethlehem that would come to the club and try to disrupt it. And they would get up and say, tell all these stories about the oppression in Bethlehem, you see. And this is another reason I wanted to go there. And there was one student who believed in a future for Israel who was from Bethlehem. And he said, Everyone, I know these kids. I grew up with them. They're all lying. They're making up stories. You know, I don't know what to believe from these people. But you go over there and you don't know. I mean, is this really that bad? You see what I'm saying? And they're making a mountain out of Mohill, my, my humble opinion. Well, guess who else was there to speak? My One of my best friends, Hank Hanegraaff. <laughs> and get, he gets up and he starts his lecture by quoting a chapter of the book of Revelation. Seems like he did that back in 07 at this debate, you know. Okay. And uh, he, he said... The promises given to Abraham have been fulfilled. Uh, God has only one chosen people, and that was fulfilled in Christ. See, he, he doesn't believe Israel in the Old Testament even refers to Israel. Well, then how come God limited all the curses and stuff to, to the people called Israel in the Old Testament? Well, oh well. But he, he even brought up Daryashan, and this is supposedly something where the Israelis massacred in 1948, a village. I have an article on my website where I wrote, this has been investigated like five or six times, <clears throat> and two of those are Arab investigations, and they say that is not true, that they didn't massacre people. You know, they went over, you know, the, you had snipers who were killing Jews on the road to Jerusalem during 48, and so they had to clean that out. And they went in there and did that. But they left the back end open. They went in with loudspeakers and said, we're coming in. You know, you can flee if you want to. And a bunch of... So you'd had Iraqi soldiers who had been dug in since 1947. See, the, the war actually started seven months before 1948. 
uh, and they were fighting before that. Hey, back in the 1930s, do you realize they had a civil war? 106,000 people were killed in Israel. Do you realize that? In 38, 39, that's what brought the white paper. And all. Yo, you start looking at the details of this stuff, and you say, is this just Calvinist luck that they got in there? Or, I mean, you look at the details, and there's no way they would have had such good luck to win all the pivotal situations without God's help, without God interceding, you know, for them coming back into the land. So Hank Hank goes off and he talk brings up that, um, and he says, "Does the promise to Abraham provide a rationale for ethnic cleansing? Who's ethnically cleansing here? Why in the world, uh, when the Arabs take over Gaza or something, not one Jew can be left in it? But yet, when Israel takes over, is in a part of land there's there's Arabs living with the Jews. Who's cleansing? Huh?" Well, it's certainly not Israel. And he says, this is all typologically fulfilled in Christ. And Abraham was a Zionist, that he said, we say. And the ultimate forgiveness in um, northern uh, is defensible for them because of the modern state of Israel. And he says, Jesus, not Jerusalem, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, etc. And he quotes Acts 1.8 saying, you see, the promise is to go to the world because the kingdom is not being restored to Israel, etc. And so, you know, he Hennegraff, after we had that debate, I talked to him for an hour and a half back in 07, and he would not even admit that he was a preterist, even though he took preterist interpretations. And I said, you're right, Hank, you're a blend of idealism and preterism. And so at the end, he goes off on this big millennial rift in Revelation 21 and 22, and had ever you know about the one day there's gonna you know new heavens and new earth and all of this and he got the loudest applause of any speaker during the whole conference. They just thought he was wonderful. Uh, they had a guy named David Room who was from Holland, and um, he just talked about his support for uh, the Palestinians. A guy named Ferris Abraham. He's the guy that gave his testimony. They'd gone to Liberty. And then they had started another conference for the Palestinian people called the Kafia and the Cross. The Kafia is the black and white checkered scarf uh, that that Arafat used to wear, you know, that represents the ancient ancient Palestinians. I always like to refer to them as. And so they were proud that they were able to make a conference similar to Christ at the checkpoint for the locals and getting them socially active and not just sitting back. Once again, I didn't hear anything about evangelism. And then they brought in some rabbi, you know, who talked about how we all got to learn to live together. And then on the uh, last day in the morning section, they had four pastors who were evangelical pastors from all around Israel. Uh, One was from Nazareth, one from Bethlehem. And they say there's 30 Arab evangelical churches in Israel. And every one of these guys talked about the gospel. I thought it was interesting. They were like 50 and 60 years old. And one of them said, yeah, we got to do social justice. But you could tell these guys believed in preaching the gospel. I thought, how did they get in here? (laughs) 
And, uh, I mean, they were talking about they wanted to uh, spread the gospel. So there was that there, you know, people who had the right priorities and things. Uh, maybe Robbie can tell you about a friend of his who, who's a Palestinian pastor who's a Christian Zionist uh, and stuff. And so they basically closed out the conference because i got to close out my talk by saying, even though we didn't talk much about the Christian Zionists, they're still, he didn't use the term number one enemies. He said they're, they're, they're our biggest problem. And so I think the biggest issue is your view of the kingdom. Is the kingdom now? I don't believe so. I believe it's called the church age that we're living in. And that's why uh, we have a distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. We believe that God can manage two plans and coordinate them together and have them both come together like a novelist does you know, at the end and not conflict with his promises from, from Israel with the church and how the church is a temporary period in which Jew and Gentile are co-equal and how when our mission is done and what's our mission to call out believers who will in the future reign and rule with Christ you see and so this period that we are living in today is similar to Christ's first coming in which he is humiliated the church is often humiliated the church is filling up, as Paul says in Colossians, the sufferings of Christ. Or is that in Ephesians? I forget. And not that we're adding to the atonement or anything, but we're, we, the body, are experiencing what the head has experienced. And then when the head returns and he reigns and rules victoriously, and then we will reign and rule with him, as Revelation 3.21 says, at his right hand with him. But this is an age in which we are gathering together believers from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation, from every race on the planet, into one body called the body of Christ. But as Acts 15 teaches, God has not forgotten his people Israel. After these things, the church age, he will return and rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. He will complete the 70th week of Daniel. And they think we're crazy because we believe this. And they think we're crazy because we believe in um, a future, literal future for Israel. And they think we're crazy because, you know, we're actually seeing God at work by bringing the Jewish people back in the midst of much conflict and opposition. And yet still, here they are prospering. You should see the place over there. It is so nice. The freeways, the buildings, even, even in Bethlehem is very nice area, Judea, Samaria, where many of the Arabs live, very nice houses and things over there. And so, you know, I don't know if there's going to be an answer. I doubt if there is between this conflict, and, and we don't know what's going to happen before the rapture occurs. We know what's going to happen basically with the outline of the 70th week of Daniel uh, when that occurs, but he's preparing for that time most likely, so that probably means time is short. And so, uh, when I was leaving, I got there early to the airport, and I hung with the Haredim. I was sitting in this thing, and all these Haredim started coming. And so I, 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 I couldn't, none of them spoke English. One of them asked if I knew Yiddish. I said, no. Uh, so I hung with the Haredim before I got on the airplane, and that was wonderful, uh, I guess. But... I made it home.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, see and talk with others about what they believe and why. And, and I just pray that you would help us to indeed see clear, uh, Scripture more clearly and that we would be able to think about this and, and how very likely this type of belief is going to increase here in the United States and uh, that we would see through these issues as as we know. The Bible is so clear that you've made everlasting promises to your people Israel. We know most of them are unbelievers today, but uh, that's going to change at some point in the future. And we pray that you would help us to evangelize all people, the Jews, the Gentiles, the Arabs, uh, everybody, uh, in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Tom. For those of you who don't know, this is... Uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, Haredim is a Jewish term for the ultra-Orthodox. That includes uh, uh, Hasidic and various other uh, ultra-Orthodox groups. Uh, anybody have any questions? Okay. Yeah, there's always a lot of questions when I finish speaking. <laughs> you talked a lot about Matthew 5. I was curious if they misused James 3.18 as well. Which is? And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I did not hear that, you know, but they probably do, I would guess. But see, their, their view presupposes that everybody, you know, they don't make a distinction between believer and unbeliever when they're trying to do peacemaking. You see what I'm saying? And the Sermon on the Mount, as we know, was simply Christ uh, explaining what a citizen of the kingdom should be like. You know, it's not some paradigm for the, to impose the kingdom of God on the world. Yes. This is a subject that I've been following for a number of years, too, and, and I'm kind of surprised that you you didn't mention that they no one said anything about dispensationalist because... They, uh, they did mention us. They mentioned Darby a couple of times. Right, because, because that's their real problem. Yes. That is their real problem. Yeah. Dispensationalism, as long as you're not a dispensationalist, and one of the things I've seen... Over the last few years, have been, it's been remarkable to me to see, the, especially from the ranks of the Reformed theologians and so forth, of uh, an increasingly virulent attack against dispensationalism, right. and it, it ties in with this. Yeah, and I believe that's because we're on the right track. Uh, I, you know, the more correct view of Christianity gets attacked more than. Uh, lesser views of Christianity, but they don't like any form of Christian Zionist, whether you're dispensational or not, but they especially don't like us. And they talked about how this all started with Darby, uh, but actually it started with the Puritans in the early 1600s when uh, Theodore Beza in the Geneva Bible had a note in Romans 11 about the future of the Jews combined with the rediscovery of the lost five chapters of Irenaeus in uh, 1583. And so they started reading the early church fathers who were premillennial, you see. And so they started becoming, in the early 1600s, this would be the post-Reformation era. And the Reformation was very important because it got people interpreting the Bible more literally. And then it took time for them to start applying it to other areas of Scripture, you see. And as they began to do that, 
then uh, the Pur- the Puritan movement in the 60- was almost all premillennial. People are amazed when they hear that, but they were. I mean, uh, Cromwell was a premillennialist. Uh, who's the poet? Paradise Lost. John, D- John Milton. John Milton was pre-mill. Most of the Puritan fathers who came to America were pre-mill. People think they were post-mill. No, that came in the 1700s with the Enlightenment. That was 100 years later when they tended to be post, become post-mill. But So you have these kind of guys founding America, which does not have a history of medieval anti-Semitism as its background, like Luther reverted back to late in his life. And so we, this is why we have so many Jewish people living in our country, because we did not mind... Of the Jewish people, it wasn't part of our theology in America. Yeah, just just one note before we wrap up, Mike. <clears throat> there's there's a lot of groups out there that are pro-Zionists, that are Christian Zionists, like the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem. And I don't know where these guys fit in any kind of. Uh, I, I've been trying to figure them out. They are almost virulently anti-dispensational, but they are just as passionately pro-Israel and believe in a future for Israel and have all those arguments. And several years ago, the, the head of that organization was here speaking in, um, in Houston, a Lutheran church over here, and one of my uh, deacons at the time, uh, uh, Bruce Cooper, turned to me afterwards and said that was the most replacement theology, anti-replacement theology message I've ever heard. So the, it's it's not just dispensationalists. They're, they're just just really virulently. Although we we tend to become a, a little bit of a whipping boy. It's our time's up for Q and A. You you can pray for Tommy and me. We've both been accepted as well as my wife, uh, and given a scholarship for a two weeks uh, study course at the um, uh, International Vashem. Holocaust uh, Studies Institute at Yad Vashem in Israel. We'll be there together. Uh, so there'll be a tremor in the fourth. There'll probably be an international incident. Probably. <laughs> and so we're there for two weeks, and if we can't stir something up, then, then maybe we won't come back. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's let's uh, let's take a break. We come back in 20, 20 minutes at 3.15, try to maintain time, discipline, and uh, then uh, Dr. Andy Woods will be coming up to speak.